Hi and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 72 and today I have Dr. Mark Russell with me. Hi Mark. Hello Lawrence. How's it going up up there? Oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm halfway up there because I'm in Norfolk uh, currently. All right, yeah, anyway, it's uh, very busy as always, but um, yeah, it's going well. Cool. So listen, um, as per the usual format, um, in a second I'm going to ask you to uh, tell the listeners all about yourself, but I think I should uh, let everyone know briefly what we're going to get into, which is um, a very interesting topic because as sports scientists, S&C coaches, performance nutritionists, anyone that's involved with team sports, it's always about preparing people one way or the other uh, to perform uh, on game day. Um, and to um, uh, sort of a, 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 on the next level, it's, you know, how do we recover after that whole event? But today we're going to talk about half time. Um, and if we've got time, we might even talk about um, extra time. And these are two things that um, rarely are discussed or thought about, um, but we're going to tackle it today. So, Mark, um, for the benefit of the listeners, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, definitely. So first thing, I'd just like to say thanks for the, the opportunity to be to be involved. Uh, I think I mentioned on Twitter uh, recently that these podcasts are really becoming something which becomes a go-to for various professions, like you mentioned, S&C, performance nutritionists, so it's nice to be able to, to contribute. That, thanks so, for that. The, uh, uh, the tenor's in the post. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So, so just in terms of my background then, I originally started my sports science career down in South Wales at Swansea University. So I completed an undergraduate degree in sports science and it was really during this time, specifically during my third year of my dissertation studies with my supervisor, Professor Liam Kilduff, that my passion for applied research was really nurtured in sports science. 2007, which was uh, the graduation from my undergraduate, then coincided with a Rugby Union World Cup, and I was fortunate enough to be able to carry out a three-month nutrition internship with the Welsh Rugby Union national team under the supervision of Dan Kings, who was the performance nutritionist at the time. I know Dan, yeah. He'll be listening. Hey, Dan, yeah. how you doing? <laughs> yeah. So then after that, uh, I then commenced the PhD at Swansea University in exercise physiology and this was under the supervision of Dr. Mike Kingsley and Professor David Benton and this was focusing on the development and use of a new football match simulation which included um, technical or skilled actions for the whole purposes of being able to look at the value of interventions mostly nutritional ones and it, and it was during this time I was able to link up with Swansea City Football Club so Tony Pennock and Gary Richards who were the coaches there at the time um, and with the team I worked primarily with the academy in a, an S&C and performance nutrition role. Five years or so of academia have then, have then followed and more recently I'm based up at Northumbria where I coordinated the development of the new Masters in Strength and Conditioning which is now in its, its third cohort and ultimately I also carry out a number of consultancy roles with a range of different teams and uh, I'm also the national lead for applied exercise physiology with UK Deaf Sport and I led their sports science provision for Team GB at the Deaf Olympics in, in 2013. So I've got quite a range of background experiences. Yeah. A, a common thread through all of them have been my interest in ergogenic strategies to try and improve team sports performance. No, that that's great, and um, obviously we we've, we've met. Uh, you came and delivered some lectures for us on the ISSN uh, diploma uh, in sports nutrition program that I run, and um, there was a number of topics that you got into. Which, um, of course, one was was this concept of half time in um, in team sports. And yeah. for those that are listening, you know, I, I, I'm sure. I'm sure most of them, one way or the other, will have an interest in this. Um, you know, either if we work with athletes, um, we, we may even be uh, athletes um, ourselves as listeners, or we've got, you know, uh, kids or, or college students who are trying to get the most out of, of what they're, they're doing on, on match day, game day, 
um, you know, in anywhere in the world, there, there could be anything that, that is this is relevant to. Um, so I guess, you know, I've already mentioned at the beginning, you know, it, it, this really this really is interesting because I never really heard anyone talk about it before. Um, and what piques my interest about this, of course, is, is that thing that 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 gap in time that is so underutilized and you're going to help us understand various facets uh, behind that but um you know for me back in um the black and white days when i used to play team sports myself uh, rugby primarily i also used to play a bit of field hockey but half time was that's when you you know you took a bit of a breather and um you walked around with a, a a slice of orange in your mouth and that was about it um it's become so much more of um a used strategy where um, you know, technical information is passed to team members, particularly in elite level sports, uh, strategies, all sorts of things that, that they can't necessarily communicate from pitch side during the game. Of course, there's recovery strategies, um, which we will get into. There's all sorts of things. So perhaps you could start this off by maybe um, helping us define what what halftime is and maybe a few selection of sports because they, they don't always have the same amount of of time yeah definitely I mean ultimately on it on its very basic level then we're, we're talking about a period of, of primarily passive activities or a break in play which will separate two consecutive bouts of exercise now the majority of the research in the area is obviously focused on football and then a few papers uh, looking at more kind of rugby specific activities but crucially you, you could apply this to any sort of a a temporary pause in play if it was elongated or a number of other uh, scenarios with, within the event but crucially we're talking about a pause in, in competition uh, and like you've kind of touched upon a little bit earlier on when you're introducing things there's very different ways in which you can think about the, this period so one of the, the things I usually do if I'm presenting this type of information at a conference or even um, when I was down with you guys presented on the ISSN diploma is to start off just getting the people in the audience or the practitioners to actually think about what halftime means to them so so we can think of it in a number of different ways so is it a period of recovery after the first half because we have performed one exercise bout is it essentially a period of preparation prior to the second half we're actually we would consider pretty much all sports they would warm up before the first half of play yet this doesn't seem to happen consistently prior to the second half there may be reasons for that but is it then an opportunity for preparation or is it merely just the transition between the two halves of play where you're just trying to keep things rolling along and it, it may just be from a, a tactical perspective providing a, a change uh, in tactics or information so a number of different ways in which we can we can think about the period itself then on we can think about some of the implications that this typically passive practice may have so again there's a, a number of studies which have primarily come from football and, and basically stating that if you have a 15 minute passive period then you are going to get some quite substantial physiological changes and even from notation analysis studies where you focus on the, the initial 15 or 20 minutes of the second half, you do tend to see um, quite different responses compared to other, other periods of play. So it's definitely something which is an opportunity to have some sort of effect on subsequent performance. And, and very often match day practices or, or even half-time practices are, are steeped in tradition superstition and consequently it's, it's about appreciating that it may just be a gradual change for something that you're already doing mm. uh, to, to use this match day performance as an opportunity to have an effect on on competition really yeah and that's that's why i wanted to really get into this because i know that there are people out there that will think you know half time well there's not a lot we can do it's all about you know the the, the 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 well potentially the years but the the months the weeks and the days leading up to the competition but this this window of opportunity may for some people appear to be a marginal opportunity but of course as we get more elite um, 
those marginal differences or those marginal gains make a difference and will help differentiate you know the two the two the two sides if 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 one team or or what you know an individual even um there are even individual sports that do half time but basically um if you're not taking care of this it's a stone left unturned isn't it oh definitely without without a shadow of a doubt if if you're talking about marginal gains at the very elite level then it, it is one of these opportunities whereby if you do engage in activities where you're not consciously trying to have an effect on a certain variable, variable be that nutritional practices, um, muscle or core temperature, uh, areas such as that, then definitely there can be quite substantial reductions in performance by the end of that 15-minute half-time period. So you'll very often see if, if players don't try to maintain muscle or core temperature, then they can get a drop which is probably not too far off representative of where they were before they actually carried out their initial warm-up mm. associated with changes in muscle temperature or core temperature are then quite substantial changes in performance as well. So maybe anything between 3 up to 10% reductions in repeated sprint performance, explosive lower body actions. So, so again, we're not talking small changes here we fairly substantial very substantial yeah exactly. yeah well, we're, we're going to get into that mark so let let's um let let me just backtrack just uh, just a little bit yeah. so of course we're you know we're talking about half time and there's many sports that incorporate a half time and um you know obviously we've talked about you know football um which um um, uh, you know, well, it depends which form of football, of course. If we're talking about association football, it's a 15 minute half time. Yeah. Aussie rules, uh, they're a bit lazy down under. Uh, they got a 20 minute one. Um, our Irish uh, our Irish friends get a 12 minute one because um, it takes two minutes longer to pour a pint of Guinness, I'm figuring. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it can be, and rugby, uh, rugby uh, league, uh, rugby union is, um, well, rugby league's 10 minutes, but union can be 10 to 15 minutes. Um, yeah. Handball's 10 minutes, and of course, um, netball, uh, they're the most impatient ones um, at around five minutes. So there's a, I, I guess on average, it's 10 to 15 minutes, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yes, like you say, there is there is a range, but um, you can you can talk about encompassing most team sports within this ten to fifteen minute window, which doesn't sound a lot, but as we'll get into, there yeah. can be some quite large changes. Well, that's you know, this is why I always raise the c word, the context word, because you know it, it, we've always got to think about you know why we're doing what we're doing. Why why are we giving the advice and recommendations that we are? So obviously we need to understand these things and that's why, for example, in my uh, sports nutrition students, I like to, I like for them to be exposed to huge amounts of exercise physiology, strength and conditioning science, that sort of thing, hence the range of topics I'm into in this podcast. Because if we don't understand these things, we don't uh, we don't really know um, how and when to use these strategies and this is a strategy that we're going to get into and um, you know my analogy is always the tool in the toolbox you know you, you need to know what tools to use you need to have a nice range of tools in your toolbox but you also need to know when to use it and more importantly when not to use it um, so let, let's right so I tell you what because not everyone knows really what actually happens during um, a half time it, it was only when I started working in Premier League football and rugby that I really got an understanding of all sorts of things happens at a half-time break. So perhaps you could just give us an overview of the sorts of things that happen in that 10-15 minutes. Yeah, definitely. So again, if, if you look at um, any kind of observations of, of, say, rugby league, for example, you can get a, a nice little insight with some of the cameras which they have in the changing rooms and you'll see a little bit of an insight into what actually happens. But from the inside, um, let's say that the final whistle was to blow from the end of the first half, you're going to have a couple of minutes whereby players are physically leaving the pitch and getting back to their changing room. And consequently, if you think you have got a full 15-minute window of opportunity, you're probably going to lose uh, two to four minutes in terms of players gradually moving from point A to point B. They'll then typically, once they're in the changing rooms, 
engage with some of their maybe some of their own practices or have a little bit of time to themselves. This may, in the context of different sports, have varying degrees of treatment for any injuries which may occur. This may also have uh, an addressing of any kit or equipment concerns which individuals may have. There's very likely then going to be provision of certain practices from a, a nutritional perspective. So individuals may be taking on board different drinks. This may be water. This may be specific energy containing drinks which individuals like to have or it could even be carbohydrate gel provision. Different players will have different preferences. At some point, there'll then definitely be some sort of tactical delivery. So, dependent upon the management team who are involved, there may be certain videos which are shown to highlight key points of a match in terms of notation analysis. This will then be then followed by some sort of team talk or instructive tactical information. And then there may, at the end of the session, be some time again for the players to get themselves back into the frame of mind, which may also include an opportunity for any sort of re-warm-up activities. Uh, and this is something which, again, when you talk about context, if you hadn't have been the king of the context word, then I imagine I would be second in line because it's always something which has to be, to be borne in mind because certain sports have policies whereby players are actually not allowed onto the pitch at certain times and consequently it may then be a warm-up which is performed within a changing room, certain activities which may actually have to happen out of sight of cameras and spectators because they're not physically allowed on the pitch. And then individuals obviously return back to the pitch to, to commence the second half. Yeah, so, I, you know, I think that's a bit of an eye-opener for people, this idea that, you know, the whistle blows, that, that you don't just have literally 15 minutes, you know, available to... Um, devote to one specific activity, one has to be mindful that whatever strategy we're going to recommend um, is one of many things that need to be achieved and we need to be mindful that all these things need to be done. And, and, and no doubt, I know particularly with nutrition, oftentimes uh, the nutritional strategies at halftime can um, become, um, you know, uh, uh, ignored or forgotten about at the expense of other things that are going on i.e you know um conversations with a coach or fellow teammates or you know uh laces are broken on your shoes so you need to you know replace your your shoes or your laces or like you said a piece of kit and then before you know it you've got to get back out on the pitch at the expense maybe of doing something that you had um, not immediately thought about i.e a nutritional sort of strategy so I, I you know i think it's extremely important that one is mindful of not over complicating what it is that an individual individual needs to do but therein lies the problem doesn't it mark because not everyone has an appreciation for what the right priorities are yeah definitely i mean you, from a personal perspective and, and obviously from engaging with individuals who are in applied performance nutrition roles. Like we say, as soon as that, that whistle goes, the performance nutritionist is probably down the tunnel 10, 15 minutes before that, preparing, trying to really smooth that transition for the players coming in and ultimately having uh, various things available to them. May again be fluid provision, energy uh, providing supplements or drinks or, or even certain foodstuffs or snacks at half time, dependent upon the individual. But again, it's within the context of knowing what is realistic, what is actually worthwhile, and what is likely to be tolerated by both the players themselves, but also um, anyone involved within the coaching staff. Um, you don't want something which is going to take away from their time. Um, so again, it's a little bit of balance in terms of trying to identify what, what are essentially your quick wins yeah. and being able to implement those in the most efficient manner. So, the whistle blows, Mark. Yeah. And, damn it, I should have had a whistle. <laughs> that would have been <laughs> cool, wouldn't it? I could have, but I'm not even going to... I can't even do the taxi whistle. So, uh, <laughs> you'll just have... Listeners, you've just got to imagine I've just done a whistle. So, we've done a whistle. It's half-time. The lads or the, or the girls are going back into, um, into the changing room. Now, they've just been running around. They've been... You know, the rugby players have been 
chasing each other and diving into each other. Football players have been, you know, kicking balls around. Uh, stuff's been going on. They go into that changing room. Then they just sit down or, or whatever, don't they? So the intensity um, is a radical change. What, 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 I mean, what is the initial implications of that? I mean, from a, from a physiological perspective, then there's a, a range of different things which will occur. So gradually over the course of that 15-minute period, there will be reductions in core body temperature. There will be reductions in, in muscle temperature. There will be reductions in certain exercise-induced physiological responses. So this may be um, increases in catecholamine concentrations, which will have occurred during exercise. They will then gradually start in to reduce a range of other variables will actually um, start to take effect so again if you're thinking in terms of changes of, of acid base balance then um, that can actually have an effect as well at the end of the 15 minute break so physiologically there are some some quite large ramifications of a, a period of rest which has just finished uh, a period of prior exercise and, and your body doesn't really know that that next half is actually coming until the second half commences. So we're in a situation where, that's why I was asked, saying earlier, in terms of are we talking about recovery from the first half or are we talking about preparation before the second? Sure. So you've mentioned core temperature and, yeah. you know, it, it seems logical that they're not running around anymore, so obviously their core temperature is going to uh, be reduced somewhat over half time. I mean, how significant is this drop in core temperature? And, you know, how does that correlate to performance? Yeah, I mean, well, there's, there's a range of, of evidence from, from older studies, not looking specifically at, at half time practices, but basically implicating the role of core or muscle temperature within um, the ability to explosively contract certain muscles so you can think of it in terms of a, a one degree C rise in temperature will actually promote uh, muscle contractile performance improvements which may be anything up to 10% to and likewise if there is then a drop in, in temperature over a 15 minute period such as half time within football then crucially there are studies out there that will suggest that there will be reductions in, in sprint performance in around about 3%. So uh, it, it is a, a crucially important um, variable and one which is often forgotten. But again, at the expense of trying to maintain core temperature, you, you need to be able to do it with methods which are actually going to align to what happens within a changing room environment. Yeah, it, it's always interesting when you watch football games or, or rugby games and the second half of the game starts and so much of the action that dictates ultimately the winner and the loser of that game does always seem to occur or at least just this is from my own personal observation I'm not stating a fact but you see so many things happen that ultimately dictates the result of yeah. that so it is incredibly significant that the athletes start the second half in in optimal condition so um you know the, the, i mean obviously what we're saying here is that ultimately having the athletes just sit around and resting um for half time is is most definitely not beneficial to uh starting that second half um in a fully primed condition isn't it yeah, definitely. And like I say, there is, again, empirical observations would suggest that sometimes it does appear that there's a little bit of a lull um, within performance or within match activities in the initial stages of, of the second half. And, and evidence would tend to uh, kind of support that. So if you look at certain responses in terms of kind of the physical demands of match play, mm. then essentially there is data out there that suggests that in, in European elite players that around about 20% of those players would actually have their least intense match period in the first 15 minutes of the second half. There is a little bit of um, contention within the literature as to whether or not these responses exist as a function of, well, do you compare the first part of the second half to the initial part 
of the first half, uh, which is typically a very erratic and very um, fastidious activity being performed, and it might then be a, an unrealistic comparison. But there's there is research out there which will actually support that when you relativise the data in terms of distance covered per minute, then actually there is a, a depression in activity within the first 15 minutes of the second half. From a, from an injury perspective, uh, perspective, there is some data which will suggest that there's an increase in, in injury risk um, at the initial stages. And again, crucially, other evidence out there from simulated activity actually suggests that there is a, a range of physiological responses that will have uh, different consequences at the start of the second half compared to either the end of the first half or the start of the first half. Right, okay, so it's, it's, it's clear that muscle temperature um, is incredibly important for sprint performance and any reductions in muscle temperature will have uh, some degree of reduction in sprint performance. So how do we actually improve body temperature before the second half? Yeah, so methods have primarily focused on either passive means, so there's a, a strategy known as passive heat maintenance whereby either certain garments uh, are provided to individuals, so kind of survival style jackets whereby essentially they, it looks like tin foil. so when you see people finish a marathon and then for medical reasons they may be covered uh, in a, a tinfoil looking substance then it's uh, a way of trying to increase the amount of temperature retained by the body. Or there can be other passive methods such as um, battery-operated uh, heating elements which may be in certain clothing items. So there are a range of tracksuit trousers which will actually have uh, battery packs within them and heating elements again to try and maintain muscle uh, and core temperature. So they're passive means. There's also active means as well so very similar to a warm-up which will be performed before the first half players can perform a re-warm-up at the second half and again use muscle contractile activity actually performing exercise as a method of trying to maintain or at least attenuate some of this drop in temperature which may be occurring so before we get very idealistic about this stuff because I'm sure that both yourself and myself and anyone that's listening will be right. I'm going to start doing all these things. We're going to start buying all these survival jackets. We're going to have, you know, um, these amazing uh, warm-up strategies. We're going to do all sorts of nutritional stuff that we'll get into in a minute. But yeah. in reality, in the, in the context of the real world, there are some issues here, which is essentially barriers to these things actually happening. And there'll be quite a few different yeah. ones wouldn't they would you mind discussing that with us here yeah i mean well obviously from a logistical perspective if you have got individuals that you are trying to um give them a jacket or a garment as soon as they come into the changing room then like i say if they are trying to deal with kit issues if they are an individual who may like to remove clothing to try and cool down over this period and that's commonly been what they've done they may change their strip then obviously there's, there's some considerations there as well. Like I mentioned earlier, um, if it was a more of an active method, are, is it actually feasible to carry out a warm-up on the pitch? Are there rules and regulations which prevent this from occurring in terms of a re-warm-up? And this tends to be something which, even though people will acknowledge that there is a benefit, a physiological benefit to trying to maintain temperature either by passive or active means, then like you say, there are barriers to this. And, and sometimes it, it may just be that there is an unwillingness of certain um, coaching staff who have to employ certain strategies over the, over the time yeah. and then they're actually not willing to let anything take place. There's a, there's a range of different factors. So even though sports scientists may appreciate from a physiological or performance perspective, again, logistical considerations may be something to bear in mind and this was something that was highlighted in a, a recent review paper which was published in uh, Journal of Sports Sciences. Yeah I mean I, I know because I've been in these situations quite a few times over the years and 
you know the 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 lack of buy-in by some of the staff non-sports science staff particularly coaches um managers that sort of thing who and I'm I'm almost quoting verbatim is oh, I I'm not doing any of this sports science mumbo jumbo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but to be fair, to be fair, they they've got strategies in mind. They've got information that they want to communicate. There are there is a priority of things that need to be done. Now we as sports scientists, um, well we're coaches as well, but as pure sports scientists, you're just thinking about the science. And I did um a podcast with Marco Cardinale all about the issues of over-sciencing. Yeah. And we can be guilty of that. However, there is always more than one way to skin a cat. Um, so I know you've done some work um, where we're looking at the difference between passive and active um, you know, strategies to, to maintain body temperature or improve body temperature. And for me, knowing that there are conversations in that locker room that need to be had. There's going to be some strategy. There might even be a bollocking by <laughs> by yeah. uh, by the you know the coach or the manager. There's stuff that's going on. The uh, the the physios might need to do a bit of strapping or taping on someone. Uh, we've got our nutritional strategy. So bouncing up and down and you know uh, running around and stuff isn't always the most practical way of things. So I mean what what is what have you found um, in that regard? Yeah, I mean, like you say, very often you have to account for the logistical considerations and as scientists it may be very easy to, to um, look at things within within the context of, right, we've got 15 minutes to employ this scenario, mm. uh, best case scenario, this will actually happen. I think very often from a, a scientific perspective it's about trying to minimise that transition from paper to practice and that's been something which has always really kind of driven any research which I have carried out is ultimately how can the end user i.e. the player or the coach use some of this information and, and it may be down to the fact that actually if you are answering a question which the practitioners are providing to you so I have a four minute window what actually can, can we carry out um, are we using participants who are involved within um, the actual competitions themselves, so higher level participants instead of looking at recreational university standard and, and crucially trying to ensure that we are minimizing this transition from paper to practice and, and like I say, if you can then get buy-in, ultimately even though people may have different motives, the common goal which everyone is linked by is trying to improve the performance of the individuals that are in front of us. So if that is the manager giving his uh, half-time talk or if it is us the sports scientist, the nutritionist, the S&C coach preparing the individuals or everyone is linked by this common goal of, of trying to improve performance of the athletes. So it's about working within the context of, of what actually uh, the paper will be used with in the end case yeah no absolutely and that's why i like having these discussions because we'll be discussing stuff that people um who've not necessarily had the experience yet um for those aspiring sports scientists that are listening to have seen these things these are the things you should expect because of course when we learn about this stuff in college we read the papers um there is uh, a big difference between um, you know uh, what we're reading in terms of science mechanistic stuff and what actually happens in the real world so as long as you're as long as you know about this stuff you're going to be better prepared um, so just 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 quickly before we get into um, the more nutritional and hydration stuff um, you know the, the, this this business of active warm-ups and passive warm-ups and so on I mean what sort of timings um, are involved in those price in those processes. I mean, from an, from an applied scenario, yeah. uh, you may be looking at something between three, maybe five minutes of availability to carry out an active rewarm up, if it's even possible yeah. at all. Um, obviously, for then more passive um, strategies, then it depends, obviously, on how you implement them. But there is. Uh, the, the potential for a slightly longer area or time for a passive intervention just because of the fact that it would 
um, accommodate within what's actually going on within the changing room a little bit more easily than, like you say, jumping around, bouncing up and down, etc. And, uh, you know, being Brits, we love moaning about our weather, but some of the listeners who are all over the world for this podcast, uh, but some of them uh, do... Um, work and perform in, in environments that are far hotter and more tropical than these environments. Is it, it, what is the relevance of, um, of, of actually performing in a, in a really hot environment and then at half time you're actually in a situation where you're in a position to maybe cool down to a more optimal temperature perhaps? Is, is there any implications there? Yeah, definitely. This is, this is something that we've been considering. So, um, you, you could argue that you're actually taking away um, a period of, of temperature recovery if you was to engage with heat maintenance strategies over the course of a half time period if somebody was actually carrying out activity within a, a more um, greater temperature environment such as you've mentioned. Mm. Studies wise, most have tended to look at more kind of ambient temperatures so it definitely would be something to really investigate and try and focus on. Um, it may be a case of that you're actually trying to prevent or maintain hydration status, you have to adjust kind of nutritional strategies at the expense of trying to maintain muscle or core temperature um, for the beneficial effect on, on subsequent performance. Or it could even be down to the case that temperature may not change as much if um, there was a, a greater temperature at half time anyway. Um, so would some of the performance decrements that have been observed previously actually occur to the same extent? So it's definitely a, an interesting question. It's something which uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to look at with colleagues down at, at Swansea University as well who've led on most of the, um, the research that we're, we're talking about here. No, that's great. Well, that will be definitely another podcast at some point. Um, so let's transition then. So again, something at halftime that people um, often see, well, it's not just at halftime you see this, but most definitely does occur at halftime is, you know, outcome the uh, the sports drinks and potentially the snacks. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we might refer to these as hydronutritional strategies. So, you know, if you want to describe to the listeners what we mean by a hydro-nutritional strategy, and then we can get into um, the context of that. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate around um, certain macronutrients at certain times, but irrespective of um, some of the viewpoints that may be had, or pretty much everyone involved in, in high-intensity exercise performance would advocate the use of certain nutritional strategies i.e. carbohydrates and fluid provision on on match match days and competition days so essentially within the the scope of half time then very often um carbohydrate electrolyte drinks are, are recommended or consumed and these may be anything between six uh, and ten percent concentrations uh, and these are, are drinks which are commonly advocated within both the literature and applied practice for the beneficial effect uh, seemingly of trying to maintain uh, blood glucose concentrations throughout the full duration of the exercise bout. Um, and within that, um, there's essentially a, a range of different strategies which can be, can be used. So do people actually just consume these drinks during their warm-up and at half-time, which may be common actually in, in football, where there's not many breaks within play, or if we look at some sports like rugby, which is more opportunity for a physio or someone involved in carrying water or fluids to, to enter onto the pitch, then it may be slightly more regular within uh, the context of those sports. But, but crucially, we're talking about the provision of carbohydrate-containing drinks and electrolyte drinks yeah. um, over the course of the match. So, and, you know, as you know, nutrition is my main interest in, in, in um, exercise science. So, you know, we've talked about all sorts of things in this podcast with people, but when we talk about, you know, carbohydrate drinks and so on, we're obviously talking about the relevance of that to performance. Yeah. And um, we have discussed, uh, uh, particularly recently, in fact, with Asker, you can drink... We, 
got into this a bit, but um, I know that um, Graham Close and James Morton, um, who I know very well, who've also been on this podcast quite a few times and did a lot of uh, lectures for us on the ISSN diploma, will also talk about this from the perspective of um, actual glycogen availability. Um, and as Asker had pointed out, you know, the, the, the concerns are not necessarily ensuring that your tanks are full to the brim. We just want to make sure that there's enough in there. Um, so when we talk about glycogen availability, uh, glycogen utilization, um, you know, uh, you know, what are the considerations that we need to be aware of in that regard? Yeah, I mean, well, the importance of glycogen for any any sort of high intensity performance is is, is well acknowledged. And if we, if we talk about in the context of intermittent sports performance, then glycogen depletion is one of the key mechanisms actually proposed to explain fatigue. And and any studies which have looked at elevation of muscle glycogen concentrations before exercise through either carbohydrate diets or looking at increases in carbohydrate consumption throughout exercise would actually support the benefits on, on performance. From a football perspective, then an absence or a lack of specific nutritional strategies on a day can actually lead to fatigue, again, primarily linking into muscle glycogen depletion. Not necessarily um, glycogen depletion overall but there is a, a role for muscle fiber specific glycogen depletion so there are studies out there that have found that specific muscle fibers were actually completely depleted or mostly depleted of their glycogen at the end of of a match and the ability to actually reverse some of this or try and prevent it from occurring is one of the, the key challenges of the performance nutritionist on on match day or competition day yeah, and it, I mean, it really is interesting, isn't it, just how much fuel people use um, when they perform. And, of course, a game of two halves, which is what we're really talking about here, um, some of the athletes, because, of course, there's a huge amount of variation, not just between individuals, but also between demands placed upon an individual, which, which will be very much a game-to-game -game thing, depending on what happens in that game, really, isn't it? But at the end of the day, they're going to hit half-time with some degree of depletion. Now, since we're not doing biopsies at halftime with some instantaneous analysis <laughs> um, at halftime, we have to make some assumptions, don't we? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are studies out there that have looked at muscle biopsies and using either simulations of, of football or team sport match play or actually the matches themselves. And they will find that over the course of, of the 90 minutes, there will be a depletion of, of glycogen, as you would expect. But crucially, the fastest rate of glycogen actually appears to occur within the first half. So there will be reductions in muscle glycogen content present at um, the, the time point when these guys would be going into the changing rooms. And consequently, that's one of the rationales behind looking at certain nutritional strategies at um, either half-time or throughout the full duration of a game to try and attenuate or minimise some of these such that uh, any performance effects are minimised. Yeah, and the, you know, just so that we make it clear about the, you know, because before I did mention there are different things that need to be done, so there's going to be different priorities that ultimately... Um, the 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 consequences of not topping up, we'll call it, at half time, um, their uh, you know their carbohydrate intake, their glycogen stores, potentially, how how is that going to impact the second half of the game? Yeah, well, I mean, we'll no doubt talk about some of the the transient changes which actually occur um, as a consequence of taking on board some of these drinks. But if we think of it from a fatigue perspective then very often in the last 15 to 20 minutes of a game then it's evident that um, there is some level of fatigue within either certain players or all players that have completed the full duration of the game up to that point. Some people will actually contest the fact that does fatigue actually even occur within team sports but in all of the studies that have actually had isolated performance tests before and after a match or before and after each half will typically 
demonstrate that players are unable to maintain the same level of pre-exercise performance. So it could be fatigue which manifests itself in terms of um, inability to perform kind of repeated sprint exercise to the same level. It may then also align to the primary aim of most team sports, which is scoring more points legally within the opposition, within the allotted time, actually manifest itself within technical or skill performance as well. And that's sometimes which is very often missed out on. Matches are, are not won and lost on the ability of players to cover the most or the least distance at a certain threshold. Um, it's very often won or lost on high-intensity skill-based activities. And there is evidence out there to suggest that technical performance will actually reduce over the course of the second half. So again, fatigue can manifest itself in a, in a lot of different ways, mm. but ultimately it's the inability to maintain a, a specific level of performance. Yeah, of course. And of course, we, we can't assume that the second half will be the same amount of time as the first half by virtue of a potential extra time period, which um, imposes even greater demands, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, again, definitely this is something which we've we focused on at, at Northumbria. So one of my PhD students that I supervise, Liam Harper, he's PhD, he's, he's focusing on physiological and performance effects of the extra time period. Now, if, if we're talking about extra time, it's it's at least an additional 30 minutes of, of match play within football scenarios on, on certain matches where a winner has to be decided. And up until we'd started looking to this, surprisingly, there wasn't really an awareness within the research literature, at least, of what the demands of extra time are. So players will be covering an additional three to four kilometres, if not more, um, of match play over the course of that 30-minute period. And again, there can be some, some quite catastrophic reductions in physical performance markers and even technical performance over the course of this period. And, and this is a period of time which, again, in the context of the whole game, if it was still um, the scores were tied at the end, players are then going to go on to penalties, whereby it becomes a very kind of cognitive skill-based action. Um, and, and again it's something which is important to bear in mind from a, a nutritional perspective is are there opportunities or is there just simply not time for certain substances to be absorbed or even logistics of getting them onto the pitch at certain points so again something to bear in mind yeah no absolutely and I, like I said earlier you know if we're not even aware of these situations we can't be prepared and if we're not prepared uh, you know not, not, not great things can happen from that. Um, so we don't just deplete glycogen um, from the muscles when we when we run around. There are other benefits to having optimal stores of, of glycogen. What what would that be? Yeah, I mean, there's if we can talk about it in terms of maintenance of, of blood glucose concentrations, then typically um, in a, in a skill based environment then glucose concentrations are important for the proficiency of technical actions so again maintenance of blood glucose supply and, and this is one of the, the key areas um, whereby there is a little bit of kind of contention within the literature in terms of the ability of certain hydronutritional strategies to maintain something which when I, when I initially started looking at this uh, something which I, I thought was a, essentially a given it was uh, a dead cert, it would definitely happen, um, but some of the responses that we saw from a blood glucose perspective was something uh, which was quite surprising initially. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, is so many things go on, don't they, but decision-making is huge. I mean, if we reflect upon the recent unfortunate circumstances within the, uh, the England performance at the Rugby World Cup, um, that wasn't a physical uh, performance uh, decision necessary. Sorry, situation. There was a decision that had to be made um, that possibly could have been affected by this sort of thing. You know, it 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 just shows you how important decision making is. It's not just how fast a person is or how amazing their skill set is. There, there's, you know, these sports are tactical, which means that one's brain is also an important part of this performance um, machinery, isn't it? Yeah, definitely, without, without a shadow of a doubt, there's, there's a whole body of literature 
which has essentially looked at kind of carbohydrate provision on, on cognitive function um, and the array of benefits that it can actually have in, in sometimes very kind of basic tasks which lose uh, in some respects their sport specificity but then uh, some of the work which we've also carried out as well looking at technical or skill based actions would actually tend to suggest that there is a beneficial effect of certain uh, nutritional supplements or ergogenic aids which actually have an effect on on skill performance so they would be things such as carbohydrates the ability to offset dehydration and maintain fluid provision and also um, caffeine consumption as well yeah i mean you know obviously there there are so many things we could discuss um as it relates to this topic and i think the irony here is our discussion is going to be considerably longer than the actual amount of time people have yeah. <laughs> for half time which just shows you um how big a uh, an issue this could be so um we talked about maintaining um muscle glycogen levels we've talked about also the relevance um of carbohydrate intake to blood glucose um how that could affect cognition and, and decision-making and all that sort of thing. But um, we also uh, should have in this conversation um, a focus on hydration. Um, so you do also see people, you know, they just drink water. Uh, some people don't drink anything at all. Um, you see various well-known brands of sports drinks. Some are the sugary types, some are the sugar-free types. Um you know, and some people do literally nothing. Um, you know, in terms of the half-time scenario, what is the relevance of hydration? Oh, it's it's one of the one of the one of the key factors. So it it, it can be one of the reasons why certain individuals will actually take on fluids as opposed to just a carbohydrate gel because there is a requirement to maintain hydration status. It, it wouldn't be uncommon for individuals even if they are uh, taking on board some sort of fluid uh, to actually experience losses um, in excess of, of two kilograms of, of body mass uh, over the course of a match. And again, like we know the ability to um, offset dehydration or hypohydration dependent upon the extent is a, is a key thing, again, in terms of cognitive decision-making, in terms of muscle function, in terms of a range of different variables associated with kind of temperature regulation so the ability to maintain hydration status is is one of the, the the key things and also one of the reasons behind provision of carbohydrate drinks potentially at uh, very frequent intervals if you were to look at some of the the older recommendations based on uh, fluid provision but this doesn't always have the desired effect in terms of maintaining glucose concentrations so some of the literature which we've actually produced which would tend to, to challenge the notion that your blood glucose concentrations are maintained for the, the full duration of the second half as a consequence of consuming carbohydrates at half time so so fluid provision is, is a massive one but but are these drinks actually doing what what they kind of say on the tin yeah yeah you know, um, I, I've actually done a, a very interesting podcast with Ben Jones, um, all about hydration, uh, uh, which I would refer the listeners back to because that, that's a whole hour discussion in itself. But um, it makes me think uh, at the um, at our lab at Guru Performance, we were testing uh, last year an elite triathlete um, doing some metabolic fitness testing. And um, I weighed him before we got him to do the uh you know his uh vo2 max test basically um well it was a combination of vo2 max and a and a, uh, a fat max uh, ask you can droop style fat max test and uh, anyway uh to cut a long story short the whole test including the warm-up and cool down was about half an hour um he lost two kilos in that test and we're talking a triathlete not a not a 18 stone rugby player um, yeah. or, a, or a, you know, a 10, 12 stone football player. This, this was a, a pretty small guy, you know, um, a long course triathlete, lost two kilos from sweat in a half hour test of which maybe 15, 20 minutes was actually, you know, deemed work. Yeah. Um, so give us, so on that angle then, I mean, you know, just how significant are fluid losses in these team sports? 
So if we if we talk about obviously um, mass losses, then it's crucial that you're trying to potentially minimise some of these. So you're looking at, like we said before, in, in your example of um, the the two or three kilos, then if if individuals do have um, masses or mass losses such as those, then it's it's crucial to try and offset them. Half time is a crucial period. Like we said earlier, there are ramifications of typically passive practices there are ramifications on practices which will then occur or physiological responses which will then happen either at the start of the second half or throughout the full duration if these strategies aren't, aren't kind of optimized so it, it definitely is another opportunity on match day to have an effect on performance and, and in that context is massively important for um, someone to have an awareness of uh, the potential for half time to be used as an ergogenic opportunity. So, you know, we um, we understand hydration is incredibly important. There are opportunities to hydrate um, at other points in the game, though, aren't there? Like injury time, uh, you'll see, uh, like rugby games in particular, you see this quite often where something's happened for some reason, players stopped. And you see the performance nutritionist or one of the S&C or sports science team legs it onto the pitch with a little, you know, a rack of of, of drinks. Yeah. Um, but we can't assume that that's going to happen. We don't know that that's going to happen, but we do know that half time is going to happen. So, so based on the available evidence and data, what should we be doing then in terms of um, our hydration and our... Um, carbohydrate intake which you've alluded to is is best combined I mean what what should we be doing okay so in terms of carbohydrate provision then there is some evidence out there suggesting that there might be utilization or benefit of actually using a low glycemic index carbohydrate yeah uh, now this is somewhere which our research is actually focusing on at the moment so um, I'm not sure how much detail you want me to go into this and how much time we've actually got. This would probably be a separate podcast. Yeah, yeah, we're near the end, just for reference. But uh, but ultimately, there's there's evidence to suggest that high glycemic index carbohydrates, which are consumed over half time, um, can actually have a detrimental effect on blood glucose concentrations at the start of the second half. So you could actually change the glycemic index of the carbohydrate which is consumed. Possibly within that light also look at various other factors. So do you actually need to consume or ingest the carbohydrate? So could mouth rinsing towards the end of the halftime break actually perform an ergogenic effect within the initial stages of the second half? And then other variables such as caffeine ingestion may also be worthwhile again from a fatigue resistance point of view, but also a... Um, technical performance uh, aspect and this could be caffeine in the provision of a, of a chewing gum perhaps again linking into this idea that there are receptors within the the oropharyngeal uh, orifices which are actually able to communicate with the brain stimulate reward centers and then have a, a beneficial effect on on subsequent performance oh there's so many things we can do <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty awesome, isn't it? I mean, I, I'm actually uh, I'm going to be doing a, a podcast soon all about the um, mouth rinse concept. Uh, we we James Morton was talking about it in an earlier podcast uh, briefly, because um, of course there are players that just for one reason or other don't want to drink something. Um, they may not be able to stomach it. Um, there's all sorts of scenarios uh, they don't, uh, and sometimes even they don't like the taste of something and they quietly just refuse to drink something but but not having to swallow the sports drink isn't necessarily a barrier to a use of a sports drink at half time definitely, no, definitely. I mean, you, let's say there is evidence out there suggesting that just merely the presence of some of these foodstuffs or drinks within the mouth can itself elicit an ergogenic effect so it may be worthwhile to practitioners out there if you are using carbohydrate beverages in, in, instead of just advising players to swallow them yeah. and get an ergogenic effect 10, 15, 20 minutes later, however long it may be dependent upon the substance, there may also be a rationale to prior to swallowing and consuming the drink, swilling it around the mouth to get more of a short term 
beneficial effects so again something which is not associated any cost any disruption too much to normal practice it's just putting a slight modification onto what people are already doing and seeing whether that is something which again may elicit uh, slightly beneficial effects and again within this concept of marginal gains mm. they all they all add up they do they do add up and in in more ways than one i mean i what i love about the way you know our our understanding of the science behind this stuff has developed is from a nutrition perspective which is maybe what you know the coaches and the managers particularly the old school ones maybe their perspective is based on what we used to know you know it's just calories it's it's just a bit of carbs it's just a bit of protein but you know we now know that it's more than just that it, it's you know the stimulation of the signaling responses um there's that whole side of thing, how it interacts with our gene expressions. I mean, there's all sorts of cool stuff which I've explored in past podcasts and have some very interesting topics on this sort of stuff coming up soon. But, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of at the end here. This, this, I think, has become one of those podcasts that really we need to have a second half. But, you know, let, let's try and sum things up a bit because um, I do try and keep these podcasts at around an hour um, if I possibly can. So... Um, maybe you could um, give us some take-home messages uh, uh, from what we've been discussing. Yeah, definitely. So, um, first of all, there are opportunities with on uh, on match days to actually have an effect on uh, performance. If you engage in typically passive practices over half time, then there are likely to be consequences or different physiological responses which occur at the start of the second half. In terms of interventions, then it's very important that these align to some uh, of the practices which are currently happening. So not not going in there as a, a nutritionist or SNC coach and totally trying to reconstruct the half time period and looking at various strategies such as heat maintenance strategies, be these passive or active means. And ultimately trying to optimize your hydro nutritional practices maybe through the use of different ingestion strategies so swilling versus actual consumption trying to maintain fluid provision but also looking at the type of carbohydrates which are consumed over the course of the halftime break yeah no thank you mark that was excellent so um as uh, with all current podcasts now i've created a information page on our website at guruperformance.com there are various places you can access the podcast but for the resources specific to the podcast you'll only find those at guruperformance.com so Mark um, I'm gonna uh, link various papers of yours uh, that I had read um, to the resources page Um, but just just briefly and your research gate and and so on but um, briefly, if, if folks want to find out more about you, I know you do a bit of Twitter. Um, you've got a, a department website because people may want to come study with you. So just quickly tell us about that. Yeah, definitely. So um, on Twitter, my Twitter name is at Dr. Mark Russell, but the, the S's in Russell are the, the number five. I am also on ResearchGate, and uh, as Laura mentioned, then Northumbria University have website and I am the the program leader for the Masters in Strength and Conditioning so if any of this topic of interest sparks any interest then uh, feel free to to get in touch. Now that'd be great and I know um, my colleague at Middlesex University Anthony Turner is listening and I just want to point out that um, (laughs) your program would of course be the second best MSc program in the country. Okay, that's fine. I'll bear that in mind when I present Ant's conference later on. Yeah, Ant and I always have this joke about his program and my program, and uh, his is uh, mine is the second best program. So I thought I would uh, defer that to someone else for once. Um, so uh, as I mentioned, uh, there'll be some resources on the uh, podcast page uh, for this and other podcasts at guruperformance.com. You can get this podcast course via iTunes. Stitcher and uh, for those of you that just want to download episodes and so on you can access the raw feed via guruperformance.com as well. If you want to learn more uh, from us at Guru Performance we produce the ISSN Diploma Postgraduate Programme which you can do anywhere in the world or do the blended learning learning version in London where you will um, be able to access some lectures by 
uh, Dr. Mark Russell, which he's done for us recently. Alternatively, uh, we now also have um, CPD, or for those in America, for example, uh, we do CEU mini courses endorsed by Sports and Exercise Nutrition Register, British Dietetic Association, and others to come shortly. You can contact us at guruperformance.com to learn more about those uh, CPD mini courses. Um, but for everything uh, you want to learn about us, just go to guruperformance.com. The ISSN Diploma is at issndiploma.com. Uh, and of course, if you want to go on to do an MSc in Sports and Exercise Nutrition uh, beyond the ISSN Diploma, do uh, have a look at the program I run um, at Middlesex University. So um, thank you very much, Mark, for your time. It's been um, incredibly valuable to get your, your knowledge today. No worries. Thank you very much for the, uh, the offer to be involved. No, thank you. And, and uh, folks, that's the end of episode two, uh, 72, I was about to say two. Uh, I, of course, am Laurel Barrick, and I'll bring another episode back to you very soon.